This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by The Illustrated Art of Manliness. The Illustrated Art of Manliness is our latest book. If you've been following the site for the past few years, you've probably seen those illustrated guides we've done with illustrator Ted Slampiak. We've taken some of our most popular ones, but also just created a whole bunch of new ones. About 60% of the book is brand new and put them in a handsome, hardbound book. Great book to put on your coffee table, keep by the toilet, give a gift as Father's Day gift, Christmas gift, graduation gift, etc., birthday gift. Awesome. Anyways, buy one. Your purchase will help support the Art of Manliness podcast as well as the content we produce on artofmanliness.com. And thanks to everyone who has already bought a copy. Really appreciate it. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, about a year ago, I had cultural critic William Derezowitz on the podcast discuss, among other things, a speech he gave at West Point in 2010 on the power of solitude and making better leaders. It's a powerful speech, and my guest today is one of the individuals who was impacted by it, so much so that he spent seven years researching and writing a book on the intersection of solitude and leadership. His name is Mike Irwin, and he's the co-author of the book, Lead Yourself First, Inspiring Leadership Through Solitude. Today on the show, Mike and I discuss why solitude is more than just secluding yourself from other people, why it's so hard to come by in the information age, and how leadership in our governments and businesses have suffered because of its lack. We then dig deep into specific benefits that solitude can give leaders by looking at case studies from history. Mike shares how solitude practices enabled Dwight D. Eisenhower to make big analytical decisions like launching D-Day, helped Lawrence of Arabia and General Ulysses S. Grant to come up with creative war strategies, allowed Abraham Lincoln to keep himself emotionally stable during the Civil War, and gave Winston Churchill, Martin Luther King Jr., and Pope John Paul II, the moral courage to stand up for what they believed in. We end our show discussing practical ways you can inject some more solitude into your life, no matter how noisy or busy it is. It's a great show, gets high level, but also gets brass tacks. You're going to want to take notes. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash lead yourself first. Mike Irwin, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. So you wrote a, a book that I really loved, Lead Yourself First, Inspiring Leadership Through Solitude. Before we get into the power of solitude and making us better leaders, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure, absolutely. So I've got a bit of a eclectic background in terms of you know where I've been involved with various leadership efforts. But you know, I graduated from West Point in the United States Military Academy in 2002, so September uh, 11th, 2001. That was the start of my senior year. I ended up branching military intelligence as a result of that. Served 13 years on active duty. And part of that journey was uh, I deployed to Iraq once, Afghanistan twice in support of the 1st Cavalry Division and 3rd Special Forces Group. And then I was selected to go back to graduate school en route to become an assistant professor back at West Point. So I studied positive psychology at the University of Michigan under one of the co-founders of the field. And then I went and I taught leadership and psychology for three years. And then I wrapped up my time on active duty at Special Operations Command down in McDill Air Force Base in Florida. And then since then, you know, I've been leading this nonprofit called The Positivity Project. And you know, our mission is to empower America's youth to build strong relationships by recognizing the good in themselves and others. So basically a, a focus on character and how can we more effectively as adults and especially as teachers instruct students on what character is so that they see the good in themselves, but more importantly in other people. So, um, and I guess, yeah, the final thing is that I'm the founder and serve on the board of directors for a veteran support nonprofit called Team Red, White, and Blue, whose mission is to enrich the lives of America's veterans by connecting them to people in their community through physical and social activity. So I got involved in various efforts at various degrees and capacities, but very driven by this notion of servant leadership and how can I as a leader as often as possible be working to improve the lives of people around me. So That's awesome. What what an uh, impressive CV you have there. And, and for those of you who are interested, we actually interviewed uh, JJ from Team RWB uh, about the program, what they do. So if you guys want to check that out, check just Google Art of Manliness Team Red, White, and Blue. You'll find that podcast interview. It's a really good one. And then you you co-authored this book with Judge Raymond Kethledge of the um, Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a bit of just real brief, brief background on that is that I was a graduate student at Michigan studying positive psychology, and, and that's really when this whole journey began. Read a powerful article that was actually a speech given at West Point, you know, back in 2009, and it really prompted this reflection about what an important subject 
it is to think about the role of solitude and leadership. And, and obviously, the world is only noisier and more crowded than ever today than it was back then. But even back in 2010, we felt, wow, there's such a huge need for people and especially leaders to spend some time engaging with this thesis and this message. And, you know, it took quite a long time. Uh, it was a journey of perseverance t- to be able to produce the book. A lot of reading of his history and a lot of interviews with contemporary leaders and analysis and sort of putting it all together into a coherent package. And then also getting, you know, obviously a, a top rate publisher like Bloomsbury to be interested in it and then work with us along the way to make something that was good significantly better. So uh, really happy with how it turned out and looking forward to sharing some of the thoughts with your community. So was that West Point speech given by Bill DeRezowitz? It was, yeah. So it was yeah given to the plebe uh, English class in, in the fall of 2009. And you know, I actually reached out and, and contacted him and told him what a powerful speech it was and what a powerful article it was. And uh, he was the one who, who sort of encouraged you know me to hey, if you want if you want to go deeper on this, you know, I suggest you know you write a book on it. And of course, I didn't know uh, I had a, a general idea of what a significant undertaking it was, but did not think that it would take you know seven years from that conversation to publication. But it was that was the the article that went viral. Yeah. You know, which still if you Google. Solitude and leadership. It's been viewed millions of times over these past, you know, seven eight years since the article came out, and uh, it's still I, I read, you know, reread it once in a while because it's really inspirational. Yeah, and for those of you interested, we actually interviewed Bill a while back ago. It's episode number two sixty one. If you want to check that out, we talk a little bit about the the his speech, but then we also get he wrote a book about Jane Austen, what you can learn from Jane Austen. So we talk about that too. All right, so let's get to uh, your deep dive into solitude. So the the speech that you read had a big impact on you. I'm curious, were there like, besides that moment, were there other moments where you experienced firsthand that solitude, right? Well, yeah, well let's get to the, let's do this first before we, we get into what's talk about that. Like, how do you define solitude? Because I think when most people think what solitude is, it means you're like a monk, you're by yourself, you're not, you're not around anyone, you seclude yourself. Is that how you define solitude or is it something else? Yeah, no, and and obviously, as, as you've read the book, I mean, you know that we really define it in a very different way. While you can achieve solitude, certainly on the top of Mount Rainier or out in the woods for days at a time on your own, that's certainly an extreme, sort of a five standard deviation from the mean opportunity for solitude. We really define it as, you know, when the mind isolates itself from the input from other minds and and works through a problem and works through thoughts on its own. And so the case that we make is we define solitude is that you can achieve solitude much more readily and consistently, even when you're surrounded by people in a place like say a Starbucks or a coffee shop, or when you're somewhere out and about, you have the capacity as long as you are isolating your mind from the thoughts and the ideas from other people. And so at the same time, you could be on your own on, on the top of Mount Rainier. And if you've got access to Wi-Fi and you're reading, you know, articles and you're reading what people are pushing out on Twitter, you know, we really don't define that as solitude. So it's much more a subjective definition of when the mind isolates itself from the input from, from other minds. And I mean, I guess you kind of answered that there, like the thing that makes solitude so hard these days is that we have so much input coming to us through social media feeds, news feeds, et cetera. Absolutely. And I, I don't think this requires much of a case to be built. You know, for most of us, I think we all, to some extent, feel the crush of the information age. And Ray and I often refer to it as the input age. There's just all these inputs that come in to our mind actively and passively, you know, whether it's we deliberately, you know, go listen to a podcast or read an article or a book, or, you know, if it's just passive and it's you're driving down the road and you know, you have the radio on or you, or you see, you know, billboards and, and all these various inputs that sort of just filter into our brain and they influence our thought process and they influence what we think about. And essentially, are we focused on these big questions, especially as leaders, or are we distracted to no end from one minute thinking about, you know, what an advertisement tells us about a pair of shoes and the next minute listening to you know, talk hosts go back and forth about, you know, the NBA finals, you know, it's just, there is just so much input in the world today that technology and especially social media have made 
just so consistent in terms of the stream into our lives. Right. Yeah, I think the, the social media one is the most insidious because what I've noticed too is that you know, social media, I think it changes the way you, like people often use it, like I'm just like testing ideas out there, but like you really can't test all your ideas because some people might not like that idea and they're going to like raise holy hell and try to get like a Twitter mob after you because they don't like that idea. So you hold back. So you can't experience, you can't really experience or experiment with different ideas completely. Absolutely. And that can limit you. Right. Absolutely. No, I mean, you just, you hit on a really important point. Um, it, I think it does limit you. And when you think about, you know, sort of like the arc of leadership and how uh, accessible you know, people and especially leaders have been throughout history. You know, the, very often leaders were difficult, you know, to get a hold of. They had a lot of time, not even necessarily because they made a deliberate choice, but they they carved out time, you know, which essentially was solitude for them to think and to refine their ideas. And again, just with the over accessibility that, that people have to us today, whether it's you know finding us on social media or you know, reaching out via email and setting up meetings and requesting time. And it's just all those things. And again, there's some real benefit that comes from that, but there's just this other side that I think that we lose. And we try to call attention to that in the thesis of the book, which is that there is a downside to being very accessible and to not having you know, that space and that time to really think and do that inspired and, and heavy lifting on your own. And that's just a, a big thing that we're trying to you know, call attention to. So besides the speech that, uh, the Bill DeResuit speech that kind of kicked this off, I mean, have you had any firsthand experience where you saw the lack of solitude hinder your leadership or maybe the leadership of other people or where you saw how solitude actually enhanced your leadership capabilities? Yeah, absolutely. So the short answer to that question is that was really the bigger inspiration behind the book was obviously the article was the genesis of sort of the thoughts and the conversation with Ray and I, but it was ultimately seeing firsthand the power of solitude as leaders in our own lives. That really is what drove us you know, to invest over six years of research and effort into producing this book. You know, for me, it really, it came down to a couple of places going back to combat and downrange. You know, I was an, in an intelligence officer, so I was not out there on the front lines and in all the danger that uh, that the troops that I supported were. And so with that came a little bit of emotional, you know, sort of guilt, I think. But also with that, there was, my job was to filter through a lot of different reports, signals intelligence, human intelligence, imagery, sources, you know, what was on the open source internet, like all these inputs. And, you know, as technology was getting better in Iraq in 04, and eventually in Afghanistan in 06, 07, and 09, when I was deployed there, you know, that did it increase the flow of information that I was made aware of. And so I personally experienced in both uh, theaters, the real benefit as a leader to practice solitude. So in Iraq, you know, I would walk back and forth to the dining facility most of the time on my own, even in the really hot times in the summer, I found it to be a place where I really centered myself emotionally and grounded myself, but also where I was able to filter through all the intelligence reporting that was kind of coming through the computer. And it gave me that time. And even though it was really hot and not, a, frankly, not an enjoyable walk, because it was close to a mile in each direction, I felt it was that restorative and that important to me that I made that, you know, walk on my own. And then in Afghanistan, you know, I was the intelligence officer in support of Green Berets that, you know, had, you know, basically half of the country. So I, I was responsible for understanding the state of the insurgency and what was going on for, you know, basically seven of you know the like sixteen provinces in Afghanistan, and once again I, I found it critical to be able to step back. Um, and so what I would typically do is towards the end of the day I would go for a run, you know, uh, at night, uh, you know, just around our compound. It was less than a half a mile around. And I just I would just do laps, kind of like running around a track, and I found that time so beneficial to me where I was able to make sense of and gain insights and clarity to what the insurgency was going to try to do next, because I'd been spending all day long in front of a computer, reading all these reports, talking to people on the phone, getting various inputs from higher headquarters and just all these inputs. And it wasn't very often until I spent that time later in the evening when it was quiet and on my own that I was able to actually connect the dots and piece everything together. So from a very personal standpoint, 
And by the way, these experiences were still very fresh and sort of raw for me, especially coming out of Afghanistan. You know, we started writing this book less than a year, you know, nine months basically after I left uh, Afghanistan. So it was definitely very personal to me. So uh, let's dig into some of the specific benefits of solitude and like different solitude practices. What, yeah, like you said, you guys researched the, the heck out of this thing and you get, got a lot of great case studies from history. It's like the first benefit you guys dig into is that solitude can bring clarity and you break that into two types of clarity. There's analytical and intuitive clarity. Uh, what's analytical clarity? Yeah, so this was something that honestly we did not know um, prior to doing all the research and doing our own analysis. So, um, you know, basically analytical clarity is the type of clarity that you achieve when there is, like I was facing in Afghanistan, an intense volume of information and ideas that are coming your way, whether it's from your staff, from through you know technology, email, social media, reports, whatever it is, there's just a lot of it. And you have to make sense of that to make a decision. And ultimately, that unless you're willing to do the heavy lifting and, and to do that hard and uncomfortable thinking, you know, the kind of thinking that makes your head hurt, that you're ultimately, most of the time, not going to make the best decision um, because you have not given weight to all the various data and input. So that is analytical clarity, essentially think doing the heavy lifting and the hard thinking. Hard thinking. Yeah, this reminded me a lot of, I don't know if you're familiar with um, a book called Deep Work by Cal Newport. Yes, absolutely. Incredible book. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. It's sort of that sort of thing where you just have to, like, I love how they make the case he makes is that, you know, a lot of people think that the way you have to thrive and be successful in this new you know, social media world information was like, you know, be really adept at information and getting as much information as possible. He says, no, it's going to set you apart as the people who can think long and hard about really hard things like that. That's rare. Absolutely. And, and I think that with the, the research is even kind of bearing that out. We know that when people are distracted, they're, you know, five to 15 IQ part, uh, five to 15 IQ points less intelligent, you know, and then some of the work that's been done by some folks out of Stanford and other places have really referred to this idea that when you're in this constant state of distraction, right, you literally don't have the muscle that is required to do that deep work and to focus. And so not only do you become a sucker for irrelevancy, but and the analogy I use when I talk about this is if you want to go out and run a five minute mile, you need to have trained and so that your legs, your lungs, your heart, and your mind all have the capacity to endure what you need to do to, to run that five minute mile. And I think it's the same thing when, when you talk about doing deep work and heavy, hard analytical thinking, you can't just sit there and flip on a switch and say, okay, well, I'm going to think really hard about this right now when you haven't thought really hard about you know, your leadership decisions that you need to make in a month or two months, you know, it's just, you're not going to go out there and run that five minute mile. And I don't think you're going to arrive at the best analytical conclusion if you have not continued to work those connections in your brain that you require to do that heavy analytical thinking. So use um, Dwight Eisenhower as a case study in this, you know, the power of solitude with analytical thinking. So what can Eisenhower teach us, particularly his experience with D-Day, about how solitude can bring analytical clarity to us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, and obviously we lead off the book kind of talking about Eisenhower for lots of reasons, but, you know, when you think about the scope of that leadership decision that he had to make, at the end of the day, he had all these admirals and generals from different countries weighing in and giving their two cents about when they should go. But when you think about all the data that they had to sift through and, you know, the illumination at night, the tide, because the Germans obviously had mined the ocean to limit or to slow down an assault, you know, from, you know, from the UK, the, the wind, the weather, you know, the 82nd airborne and the 101st airborne divisions had to be able to jump in behind enemy lines. And there had to be a certain amount of illumination. So there was so many factors that they had to take into consideration but then in the moment, that actual dis the decision, you know, on June 4th and 5th of do we go on June 6th, 1944 or not, that was ultimately that decision rests on one man's shoulders, his. And he talked about how all the input from all these generals and all these other people, coupled with all the other data and the information to sift through, was really just overwhelming. And so, you know, not only did he have a practice of writing out his concerns and his ideas to get his thoughts straight, 
oh, by the way, as a very big extrovert and somebody who, you know, was chosen for the role as Supreme Allied Commander because he had the ability to build relationships and spend time with people. But then the biggest thing was, as we talked about in the book, is, you know, just before the decision had to be made, he spent about 10 minutes just sort of quietly thinking and overlooking, you know, the channel and overlooking out towards the ocean. And, you know, he really sort of pieced it all together. And that's when he turned around and said, you know, it's on, we're going, you know, and so again, powerful, super high stakes decision, obviously, and he knew that, regardless of the decision he made that a lot of men were going to die. But that was just such an inspirational and powerful example of solitude's role, you know, in a moment like that, when you have to make that big decision. Yeah, that, one of my most favorite favorite parts from that section was how you guys highlighted that practice of his of his of, of writing himself memos. He didn't. No one else saw these things. He just wrote them out for himself, and like he was basically yeah, analyzing, talking through a problem for himself, so he could get a, get his mind around the the issue. Absolutely. And he did this so consistently, starting with, as we talk a little bit about, when you know General Marshall summoned him to come to the Pentagon after Pearl Harbor. Um, and you know, he asked him, like, hey, hey, General, you know, or you know, at the time, geez, he was uh, a colonel. Yeah, hey Colonel, like Colonel Eisenhower, what do you think we should do? And he basically said, instead of just launching into his response, he said, Can you give me a couple hours to flesh out my thoughts? And so he, he once again, stepped back, wrote his thoughts down, got very clear on his recommendations for how he would proceed. And I think that moment, while we don't have direct proof of it, I think it had a huge impact on Marshall's decision to promote Eisenhower so quickly, because again, he was a lieutenant colonel up until 1941, March of 1941. So he went from a you know, a lieutenant colonel to a five-star general in under 36 months. And most of those promotions were made you know, by by Marshall. So I think that Marshall was probably very impressed by the fact that he flew him all the way up to the Pentagon. And rather than just responding, he said, can you give me some time to, to kind of put this all out and put it on paper? And, and that was obviously a practice that he took forward to Africa in 1942 and Italy in 1943. And then in 1944 and 45 as the Supreme Allied Commander. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. All right, you've got a lot riding on your tires, your friends, your family, your dog, your backseat collection of taco wrappers. But when was the last time you checked in to see how your tires were feeling? Your four tires are all that connect you and your car to the road, so it's important to be sure you can rely on them. Thankfully, Cooper Tires has more than a century of experience in manufacturing comfortable, capable tires. Each Cooper Tire is made to last for thousands of miles, help you safely get to where you need to go and back, and handle everything along the way. Their dedication to quality means they understand precisely why your tires matter. So count on Cooper, an American company since 1914. For more information or to find a Cooper Tires dealer near you, visit coopertire.com. Again, that's coopertire.com. Also by proper cloth. So finding a dress shirt that fits is hard. You go to the department store, you use your neck size, determine the size shirt to get, but the neck fits, but everything else is just too baggy and billowy. Or sometimes the neck is too tight and everything else looks fine down below or sometimes the sleeves are too long or something's always off. Luckily, ordering a custom fit shirt has never been easier thanks to Proper Cloth. At propercloth.com, you can usually create a custom shirt size in seconds just by answering 10 easy questions. It's a foolproof process. You don't even need a measuring tape. I know this because I've done it. I answered those questions and got a Oxford shirt from Proper Cloth sent to me. Fit me like a glove right from the get-go. Plus, Proper Cloth has over 500 fabric styles to choose from, including premium Italian and Japanese fabrics as well as business and casual styles. All start at just $85. And best of all, Proper Cloth guarantees a perfect fit, meaning if somehow your shirt doesn't fit you perfectly, they will remake it for free. No wonder Proper Cloth is the highest rated custom shirt maker on Google, and even GQ calls them their favorite online custom shirt maker. This is the future of shirts, people. So stop wearing shirts that don't fit and start looking your best with a custom fitted shirt from Proper Cloth. Go to propercloth.com slash manliness today and enter gift code manliness to save $20 off your first shirt. Again, propercloth.com slash manliness, gift code manliness to save $20 off your first shirt. Do it today. And now back to the show. So when should you take an analytical approach with your solitude? Is it just when there's lots of information, you're trying to get your head around it and trying to make something coherent out of it? I think so. I think that's the most clear time when we benefit from solitude in terms of the analytical clarity piece, I think that no matter where you're at in the world today, right, you, there's going to be a majority of situations where you find yourself with a lot of information. Um, the question becomes, how do you 
identify those moments as a leader, you know, that really require, because there is a cost, right? There's a cost of time and energy. And if you do step back and say, look, I need a couple of hours to step back. There's a lot of information flowing into my mind right now. And I need some time. Like, you know, you are saying no to other things. And so I don't think you can, as a leader, necessarily be in analytical clarity through solitude mode all the time. Because part of leadership, and we talk about this towards the end, is building relationships with people and interacting and being out there and seeing. That is a part of leadership as well. So I do think you have to be clear on what situations warrant that deliberate pause and and reflection at the end of the day or sometimes in the middle of the day to really do that heavy thinking on your own, you know, outside the input of other people on your staff or who work for you. So uh, let's take that, uh, go to the other type of clarity, intuitive clarity. What, what's that? Yeah. So the other side of clarity, which in many cases is the flip side of the coin is what we define as intuition or intuitive clarity. And this is in many ways, this idea where there's so much information, just like when you're talking about, you know, analytical clarity, the same situation. There's so much information coming in. There's a lot of data. There's a lot of things to consider, but rather than actively doing that hard, heavy thinking and heavy lifting, it's the, it's the opposite. You quiet your mind down and you allow yourself essentially to listen to yourself. Um, and you listen to your, you know, your gut, to your instincts, to your intuition, call it what you will. And one of the things we, we point out there is that to really be able to listen to that voice of intuition, uh, it's a delicate voice and you need to reduce some of the inputs and quiet the mind so that you can really be in tune, you know, with that intuition. And once again, same thing, a lot of data, a lot of information. It's really the process at how you arrive at the outcome. Some situations, they require that heavy analytical thinking to come to that decision, especially as a leader. Whereas intuition, it's more, how do I quiet so much of the noise down so that I can make the best decision that I know is the best decision, not from the result of heavy lifting thinking, but from sort of tapping into that, that side of my mind, which has the answer if I can quiet everything else down. Right. And that's probably my, what, what was going on with your runs, a lot of intuition, intuitive clarity coming on. Like you had all the information. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And I think this is the case with a lot of people, you know, is because as I mentioned before, and, and Ray is much more of an analytical clarity guy, my co-author, as a federal judge, he has to sort through tons of legal opinions and tons of data. And, and that ultimately has to bring it together into his own piece, into his own opinions. And, and those opinions lead and shape and influence policy and influence lots of lives. So, you know, Ray is much more, I think, of an analytical clarity. And, and I am more of an intuitive clarity where when I can step back from it and quiet things down, some of these connections start to occur. And I'm like, ah, yes, like that is the, that is what I need to do. Or I need to present the information to the Colonel like this. And so absolutely when I'm able to do that on those runs that I I have gone on for years, it serves as that perfect place to just quiet the mind and then allow those intuitive pieces of information and decisions to surface. Yeah, it seems like uh, I think the research on, there's research out on this, I think you highlighted this in the book, a lot of that intuitive clarity comes in moments when you're 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 doing something when you're not thinking about the thing, you're taking part in some other activity. So running is one, walking, like the shower, you know, the ideas you get in the shower, you know, things where you don't have, where your brain's basically kind of resting and then it's sort of working in the background on these ideas you've been mulling over. So if you want that intuitive clarity, I guess the idea is go do something where your brain just, just take a break. Yeah, absolutely. And, and people ask me kind of those questions as well. Like, ah, oh, well, where do you find you know, your time you know, for that? And it, it's mo- things like mowing the lawn. Um, my big thing now is I like pulling weeds. I live at a house where there's a lot of weeds and they need to be picked a lot. And I go out there and again, rather sometimes and bring my whole family out there to do it with me. I just go out there on my own and it becomes very sort of uh, meditative in many ways where, you know, I emerge and I stand up with two, two new ideas or, or solutions that I need to get to bring to life. So uh, absolutely it is, it is very often not just sitting there, but it's often doing something that will 
take some of your focus off that still allows that intuition to surface. So uh, the other benefit of solitude is that you guys argue that it can increase creativity. But I thought this was kind of counterintuitive because, you know, we often think of creativity as, you know, the way you're, you're, you're creative is you kind of, you take these ideas that are out there, you mix them together, and then you have a new idea and you come with a new solution. So it seems like secluding yourself could make you less creative because you're limiting the input, right? The ideas you can work with. So how can solitude make you more creative? So I think that for sure, what you just alluded to, this idea of collaboration and the power of bringing in lots of different ideas from different people is a part of the creative process. And it is, especially for a lot of leaders, where I think that we have tried to highlight and call attention to the role of creativity is that very often to connect the dots that are out there, all these different inputs and different ideas from other people, it does require that same sense of stepping back and thinking about it on your own because there's definitely times when the group might come up with a more creative solution. But what we've seen you know, from throughout history and when you look at inventors and you look at people who have founded nonprofits and founded organizations and companies, you know, very often, a lot, of, a lot of times it's been done like the sole idea, uh, you know, the creative thought to bring forward an organization that serves this purpose or builds this product is a solitary act. It's the work of, you know, really one person. Um, of course, now to bring that to life, it requires a whole bunch of people. But when it comes down to the creativity and thinking completely outside the box or in a new way, often, you know, we know that groupthink occurs when people are together um, and they often will kind of reinforce each other's ideas or quote unquote, build off of ideas, or let me piggyback on that or dovetail on this. But while it might seem counterintuitive, I think there's a really strong case to be made. And we try to make it through the book and through the interviews with people and, you know, profiling T.E. Lawrence and some other people that, that creativity can really spawn from that solitude in those periods where, because the group thinks together and, and might you know, do some thinking along the similar plane together, that actually when one person steps back from it all, that they might emerge with a fundamentally different way of doing something or a fundamentally new idea. And I think that a lot of times, especially as a leader, coming up with a creative solution to a problem, the answer is not, you know, to bring in a whole team of consultants or turn it over to your staff to come up with course of action development. Sometimes the answer is um, just stepping back and thinking hard on, you know, on, on your own. Right, right. Um, so my, my favorite, one of my favorite chapters, I mean, everything was great, but one of my most favorite ones was the, um, the idea of solitude bringing us emotional stability. And I loved the two case studies you had. It was Lincoln and Grant. What lessons can we learn from Lincoln on the power of solitude and giving us emotional stability? Yeah, I mean, think about the toll that the Civil War was taking on his emotions. I mean, we can't even fathom, I think, you know, just how intense the daily emotions that he experienced were, and certainly those who've read about him and, you know, biographies and seen the movie and all that, you know, just, just how difficult the civil war was for him to process. And, you know, in the particular instance, when he was really frustrated, you know, with general Meade and in general, just with the union army and their lack of aggressiveness to hopefully, you know, to, to win the war, especially after the battle of Gettysburg, he was at this point where he was just so emotionally distraught and you know, rather, and when he did in many similar ways to Eisenhower, he write he wrote a letter, um, you know, to General Meade. And the analogy here I use is very often in today's world, this would be like the idea of writing an email but not hitting send. He wrote this letter, but rather than putting it and you know giving it to the courier and dispatching it to the front lines, he just never sent it, and it gave him this capacity to uh, reframe the problem and reframe the challenges. And you know, as we talk about in that chapter is that, you know, really the very next day, he was just in a much better emotional state following the time when he was able to step back and think about this on his own and write the letter. And, and I think that most of us can relate to this in the world today is that, you know, when you get that initial email or something that's frustrating or that really bothers you, and you might immediately write a response to somebody, but when you step back and you don't hit send, when you come back and you look at that email, like later that night or the next day, at least for me, I mean, I delete it. 95 times out of 100. I just say there's just no need for me to say this. Um, and certainly not in this, in this vehicle, right via email. And so I think that there's a lot that we can take and directly apply in our own lives, especially in a world today that's so governed 
by our emotions and anger and rage. And so, you know, what he, what Lincoln, though it was over 150 years ago, I think can teach us is the power of stepping back from a situation when you feel your emotions are primed and your emotions are just uh, unhealthy or, you know, you know, they're not, they do not have you in the right psychological frame of mind to respond in a way that as a leader you want to, to step back because it can give you that that emotional balance you need. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. The social media really feeds on our anger, right? Uh, oh, big time. I think, that's like, I think that's what gets a lot of leaders in trouble is that they have easy access to the stuff. So if, once they feel anger, and like anger is like a, it's a really hot and it's, an, it's a fast dissipating emotion, right? It comes on strong and heavy, but then it goes away pretty fast. Yes, and so social media, it's like, okay, I can do something, right? Anger is all about making you do something. And you usually end up you know, sending an email or tweeting something stupid that you end up regretting later on. If you would just practice some solitude, get away from that input, you probably would create less problems for yourself. I, I love how you just described that, that, it, that it's an emotion, you know, anger, things like that. They come on hot and heavy and it's like really intense in that moment. And that's one of the things we say is like that solitude can really serve as like a powerful force to sort of dilute that the intensity of the emotions that you feel. And, it, and it's not just anger. It's obviously, you know, other emotions as well, but anger is the one for sure that in the world today, you know, it, it reminds me of one of those memes where it's, it's a guy sitting at a, at a computer and typing, you know, and he's talking to his wife, uh, hang on, honey, I'll be the bed in a few minutes. Uh, I'm busy arguing with, with a stranger on the internet, <laughs> you know, and thinking through, you know, how often, and obviously hopefully leaders aren't, engaged uh in debates with strangers they don't know on the internet a lot but regardless our the more we open ourselves up to information and things going on in the world the more we open that aperture for things that are going to frustrate us or make us angry and and again there is a real time and energy cost to our ability to think and to make good decisions when that's the case yeah, I, th- I think Eisenhower did something similar. Uh, whenever something like he had a temper, something he struggled with his entire life, but he had this practice: if some someone ticked him off, or there's some situation that ticked him off, he'd write it on a piece of paper and then put it at the bottom of his drawer and just like tell himself, "Okay, I'm done with that. I, I got that out of my system," and he would move on with his day. Absolutely, yeah. And, and we talk a little bit about that even in the Eisenhower chapter. And that's what's one of the things about the book is that, as you know. You know, there's a lot of intersections. So as you think about Grant and General Grant, while he also used solitude to fortify his emotional balance, you know, during and around the Battle of Vicksburg, he also really showed creativity as well through solitude where his staff sort of asked him, hey, General, what can we do to help you out here? And he said, just leave me the hell alone. And so really, he came up with a very creative solution you know, to, um, to how the Union Army would eventually succeed after many failures in the Battle of Vicksburg. And so it was, uh, solitude fortified his emotional balance, but it also had a big impact on, you know, creativity where he came up with a completely outside the box solution. And so bringing it back to Eisenhower, as you said, while we talk about him in analytical clarity, it also played a role in emotional balance, you know, to include how he dealt with General Patton, um, and, and other people who would certainly, um, ruffle his feathers. Right. Yeah. The, the section on Grant about emotional stability, like I, I've been reading more and more, but I feel like Grant's getting some more attention lately. I think it's good because this guy was incredible. I, he was, uh, you know, really like he wasn't ostentatious. A lot of people, whenever they met him for the first time, confused him for a regular soldier because he just wore regular soldier clothes. But the guy was stoic. And I think his, you highlight in the book, his stoicism came from that solitude that he practiced on a regular basis. Absolutely. And, and when you think about, again, the caliber of decisions that he was making, and again, it's not like today where he, we had access to all this information. I mean, the Mississippi River was so important in terms of alignment communication. And you know, just time and time again, the Union Army failed to be able to free that up. And so again, that stoicism that you referred to, you know, and eventually, of course, we all know about Grant and Sherman and how they worked together in the March to the Sea and just eventually what, you know, became so important, you know, to ending the Civil War. It was in many ways that stoicism and that perseverance that he had, and he achieved a lot of that through the solitude. Um, now, again, it's a very different era today as a general back then versus now, um, but it was that, that reflection often just chomping on his cigar late at night um, and thinking about, well, how are we going to crack this nut? Because 
what everyone has tried, you know, you can't just assault Vicksburg and just push the Confederates you know, off the high ground. You have to get creative. And it actually reminded me of a story from my 2006 and seven deployment to Afghanistan, where, you know, we, uh, there's this place outside of Kandahar city called the Rig desert. And the Taliban had a real strong grip on this place called Zari Panjway, right outside of Kandahar city. And they were prepared for anybody who would essentially try to assault and try to clear it from north to south off of Highway 1. And so what we saw happen is uh, some of our special forces teams and their Afghan partners actually went through the Rig Desert and took like seven days to go through the desert moving, you know, like 10, 12, 15 kilometers a day. You know, vehicles constantly getting stuck. But eventually when they hit Zari Panjwe, they arrived from the south and completely took the Taliban by surprise. Um, and it frankly allowed us to really kind of turn the tide, you know, in the Kandahar province for that, that next 12 to 18 months. And it reminded me so much of the very bold and creative decision that General Grant made about how the Union Army was going to, you know, to take that high ground in Vicksburg, which eventually played a huge role in, in the successful outcome of the, of the Civil War. Yeah. And I mean, I also like how like, you, you focus on that leaders, um, they need to make time for solitude so they can like have that emotional re- release by themselves, not in front of their, the folks they're leading. And like, you talk about how Grant did that, even though he's stoic most of the time, there was this moment where he just had to go to his tent and it sounds like he just basically bawled uh, his eyes out because of the, the situation. But then he got it out of his system and the next day he was bright and chipper and, you know, people were inspired by him, but they didn't see that he, he went out of his way to make sure that people his soldiers didn't see him in that, that state. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we call that chapter, you know, catharsis. Um, funny enough, my, my mom, you know, having read the book, so I, said, that, I just learned a new word. I never knew what, you know, catharsis meant, you know, um, it's a, this really powerful word. And, and when you think about it and it does, you know, you know, that is, you know, what happened. And when you think about that juxtaposed, especially in the world, say, we also know there's a lot of power, you know, Brene Brown does a lot of work around vulnerability and how, you know, there are times as a leader that you really need to be vulnerable around the people that you're leading. But I think there's a really strong case for it as well that, you know, people need to know that their leaders, to some extent, you know, have got it together, and not just intellectually, but emotionally, especially when you're doing things that involve, you know, stakes that are as high as people's lives on the line. And so the idea of, you know, uh, the general or someone just losing it in front of the troops, like, especially back then, I think it would have really instilled more fear in the fact that they didn't see that. Uh, and, they, and instead, they saw this revived, energized, you know, leader with this creative solution, you know, emerging from the tent, you know, was really powerful. And, and an example of something I think we all can learn from that there is a time to be vulnerable and share your insecurities as a leader. But there's also times when you need to know that people are taking their cues off of you. And you need to make sure that, you can you know, go through that catharsis on your own if need be. So how can uh, you argue also that solitude can bring us moral courage? How so? So this the part that we, you know, we closed the book and, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about some of these stories. I'd be interested to hear what ones you know, resonated the most with you, but three just powerful preeminent leaders in Churchill, Martin Luther King Jr. and Pope John Paul II are the three historical figures. And, and of all of them, you know, we put moral courage at the end because and we believe that ultimately, certainly while clarity and creativity and emotional balance are all very important you know, for leaders uh, and, and achieving that through solitude is a great vehicle that we felt that ultimately at the end of the day, you know, one of the things that leaders are called to do is often make unpopular decisions to, to not conform to perhaps the smooth path that's been set before them and ultimately you know, to instill that same sense of courage in the people that follow them. And, you know, really what drove and first jump-started this chapter was without a doubt Winston Churchill. And Ray, you know, was a history major at the University of Michigan. He has read all the books on Churchill repeatedly. And and immediately this story jumped out to him as being a really powerful example of how Churchill and his practices late at night and and how he would spend so much time inside his own mind really fortified his moral courage, not just on the parliament floor, you know, in some of his riveting speeches, but in his decision-making process. And that really jump-started the research process that allowed us to uncover the power of solitude, 
you know, for Martin Luther King Jr. and Pope John Paul II as they led the civil rights movement and the resistance against communism in Europe. So that ultimately was, we kind of viewed this as like one of the ultimate responsibilities, you know, of of leadership is to have moral courage in times when it is necessary. Um, And really, again, that stemmed from all the knowledge about Churchill. Yeah. And like you said, I think, as you said earlier, these things kind of interweave with each other. And I think one of the reasons why solitude can bring you moral courage is going back to that creativity aspect, right? You're, you're stepping away from the group and the group might be thinking, this is a great idea. Solitude, getting away from that allows you to think, no, actually, this is a better idea, or this is a, this is what we really need to do. And allows you to stand up for that when you, when you need to, like these three guys did. Absolutely. And, and when you think about how high the, once again, how high the stakes were in uh, for all three of them, you know, it was incredible. And, and I think that this is, and this is why, you know, as you know, from having read the book, Brett, but like, we also interview a lot of contemporary leaders, some of them, you know, well-known people like General McChrystal and Brene Brown and Bill George, but then also a lot of people that, you know, that most people have never heard of and don't know, because we felt it was really important to make these messages feel accessible to people. Because I think a lot of people, as you read a book and you read about these incredible leaders from history that, you know, were huge in life, but are even bigger, you know, in death, that they feel perhaps like, well, yeah, I'm just never going to have to make a decision like on D-Day or, you know, uh, how do we resist communism, you know, um, and and people are not going to attain that level of leadership, which may in fact very well be true for 99.9% of people. But I think it is important to know that there's a reason why we read history. There's a reason why we study it and why we think about the application of these ideas um, is, you know, because, you know, these people serve as incredible inspirational examples, um, you know, of what was it like when the stakes were that high with so many lives on the line or such, you know, uh, you know, high stake decisions needing to be made about how do we, how do we respond to the Germans in 1938? Um, and that's where, once again, I think to be able to make those decisions, you have to have, be able to tap into that moral courage. And I just don't think you get there as a person or as a leader by hearing a bunch of people around you reinforce you and tell you that like, yeah, yeah, that's what we need to do. Ultimately, this is a very much a conviction thing. And as a leader, you need to be able to establish that conviction to have the courage, you know, to, you know, withstand being hated or withstand, you know, you know, attempted assassinations. Obviously, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. You know, Pope John Paul, they tried to kill him. You know, a lot of people who were at that highest level they knew that there was a lot of people out there that hated them and yet still they had the courage to stand fast. And if they could do that when their lives were on the line and their decisions were impacting so many other people's lives, then I think we can draw some inspiration from that in our own personal lives as leaders, especially to find those moments where we can stick to, you know, to our guns when, when we're just disliked or we get some, you know, some, some negative emails or some, some, tweets sent our way, you know, about, you know, how we're not very polite or, you know, we're making, you know, the wrong decision. So Mike, this has uh, been a great conversation and I, I love the, the big picture ideas you've laid out, but you also highlight, like, talk about like, what are some brass tack things that people can do to inject some more solitude into their life? So I think, yeah, so I think that this is something that a lot of people are, are grappling with and I actually feel the tide is turning on this. I think that as I'm talking to more and more people, people are realizing, wow, hey, this technology tsunami of the past decade, where you know, we went from having flip phones to now having you know smartphones, but then data was still expensive, and you know, all the all the advances and how things have gotten cheaper and, and more effective over the past ten years, I think has really kind of got people to this point now where they're like, holy smokes, like how am I at this point now where I can't put my phone down or where. I need to constantly be plugged into social media or to my email. You know, um, we know from some research that people, most Americans are literally addicted to their email. They feel like they, they feel compelled to check it like, you know, every five minutes, every 10 minutes, every, you know, they just can't seem to get by without, you know, leaving their email alone in case they might miss something. So, you know, there is a big component of that. Um, and the brass tacks, and getting back to your question, I just wanted to kind of set a little bit of the context there. I think that, it really starts with this ability to know in many cases that, that you've got a problem, you know, recognizing that you're not necessarily happy with how accessible you've made yourself 
maybe in some cases you've branded yourself as the person who gets back to somebody on email within five minutes and you just take great pride in that and you're always plugged in and therefore you respond to people right away. And, and so we talk about number one, you know, deliberately resetting expectations with people. If you have become known as the person who again, responds immediately to email or is just always on social media or whatever, if you're not happy with that, you have to let people know that, Hey, I've done some reflection and I'm making some changes in terms of the, you know, the actual things you can do though. You know, some of the basics are, you know, when you're driving somewhere, sometimes not all the time, but shut your radio off, right? You know, stop all the input. When you, you know, have the opportunity to go to lunch, sometimes go for lunch on your own, leave your phone at the desk or at, you know, at your office and just go out there or leave it in your car and spend 30 or 45 minutes just thinking, clearing your head, you know, listening to your intuition or, you know, spend some time getting creative on your own, coming up with your own ideas without bouncing those ideas off other people. And then it's finding those times in our personal life, whether it's picking weeds or mowing the lawn or, you know, walking the dog or just going for a walk on our own or, or finding 10 or 15 minutes in the morning to meditate. There's just so many things that we can do. And I think that at the end of the day, what we can do and what needs to happen is you just need to first recognize that you want to reintroduce this, you know, these ideas into your life or make more deliberate decisions that allow you that space because the, the fact is we've actually, because technology and society has become more efficient than ever, we actually have more capacity to practice solitude today in some regards than in years past. But many of us have sort of made the opposite decision, you know, to sort of be constantly in the state of distraction and input coming into our minds. And it really does boil down to having the discipline to say, I want to make this a priority and I'm going to find the time to do it. Well, Mike, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book? So, yeah, so you know, the book is in lots of local bookstores and Barnes Noble, and it's on Amazon, of course. And you know, really, we don't have like a website, you know, for the book. You know, really, it's just out there. It's it's more as out there on Bloomsbury's website, but it's on social media and it's on you know just the various typical outlets where people are reviewing books and and obviously on great podcasts like this. I've had the honor to spend time interview you know talking about the book with ten or fifteen you know, different podcasts and, and sharing some, you know, these thoughts. And so hopefully, you know, people have, you know, listened to the conversation today and have been inspired by some of the ideas and hopefully feel challenged and, and called to look into the book and look into some of these ideas further. All right. Mike Irwin, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. My guest today was Mike Irwin. He's the co-author of the book, Lead Yourself First. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash leadyourselffirst, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the show, I've gotten something out of it since you've been listening to it. I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.